whenever you're ready. Oh, who's going to do the intro? I cannot remember who did the last intro. Um, I feel I just wait, I can look it up. I think I'm going to be doing a lot of talk in this episode. Mm hmm. So yeah, I don't mind. It's... But it's also but it's an Austin episode. Um, it is an Austin episode. That's a true story. Okay, wait. You're doing the most talking in this episode because I have a brain injury. Well, there is that. <laughs> yeah. Are you all right? <laughs> you good to go? You right, hon? <laughs> I'm alive. <laughs> um, you should, mate, you've got to watch Love Island. Love Island? Love Island. Season is one. Is that on, um, where, where can I, oh, okay. What can I, where can I find this? Um... It was on, on, the on, it's on the UK. It's on the UK Netflix, but you should be able to stream it. But season okay. one, honestly. Okay, let's. Is see. it like Bachelor in Paradise? Yeah. Hello and welcome to. Bo cool. I'm introing. Okay. Ooh. I might just do that. I'm not going to do a funny one. Oh. Okay. Because I don't have one. Oh, okay. You just don't have it in you. I'm going in dry. All right. I'm gonna. Yeah. Good luck to you and Godspeed. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the literary podcast that pits Jane Austen against all three Bronte sisters in a very equally matched fight because Jane Austen is of course the best. I am your host Hannah Chapman, I think you guessed it, Team Austen. And I am your host Lauren Burke, or you know, the shadow, the shell of what used to be Lauren Burke. That's Team not true. Bronte. You're glowing. <laughs> I'm alive. I'm running on three hours of sleep, which is the most sleep I've had in a long time. So I think uh, I think we can do this, guys. Let's talk about Mansfield Park. Yeah, let's talk about, pro you know, possibly the most difficult Austin book when you're feeling battered and bruised. <laughs> by the end of this, you will be battered and bruised emotionally and physically. <laughs> true story. So um, another true story. I have never really fully finished Mansfield Park. Have you? Finished I mean, I feel like one? I ha I kind of. Oh dear. So, um, as many of you know, I have just recently given birth, so I decided to go for the audio book version mm -hmm. of Mansfield Park. Um, I've been listening to it on and off, and. Um, I think I know what happens. I hope I know what happens because in the show notes, Hannah has said, Lauren is going to give you guys a quick synopsis of the plot of Mansfield Park. So only because I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> Here we go. There's a girl called Fanny and she, she, she's not an orphan. No. Right. Her mom is still alive. Right. Both of her parents are still very Both. much alive. Yeah. Oh, dear. I'm already off to a great start. I mean, they're in the book. <laughs> Gracious. Good Lord. Um, so, yeah, she goes to live with wealthier relatives, which is one of Hannah's favorite things ever. Love it. And um, she's very, you know, quiet and pious. And I'm really just not sure if I, get, like, have a hold on Fanny, to be honest. She likes horseback riding. I think that's the thing that she's into. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, we like fast forward in time to when Fanny's a little bit older when she's and hot. she's she's not that interesting. Um, but some people come to visit Mansfield Park <laughs> called the Crawfords and they are interesting. <laughs> and then Fanny marries her cousin. Do I have it right? Um, yeah, I mean, you hit a lot of you, you, you hit a lot of points that happen mm -hmm. sure. i mean it's not not a description of mansfield park right if Fair that enough. helps <laughs> <laughs> i'd recommend anyone who's unfamiliar with mansfield park goes and reads the wikipedia plot synopsis yeah that's what i should have done <laughs> that was that was that's a good idea and uh, there's a couple of bits well i guess I feel like I should say I should say what they are just because otherwise some of the things we talk about later on will not make any sense. So sure. um Fanny uh Fanny's mother is um a woman who has 
two other sisters. Now, they are wealthy. Uh, one of the sisters marries very well. She becomes Lady Bertram. She marries a guy called Sir Thomas Bertram. Um, their sister, uh, she marries a parson, a, a member of the clergy, and his living is kind of on the estate of Mansfield Park, which is um, Lady Bertram's like new home. And then the youngest sister marries a sailor. She marries for love and she goes to Portsmouth and has lots and lots and lots and lots of children and slowly becomes more and more and more poor. And because of pride and miscommunication and, you know, kind of the typical things that you can imagine in Georgian England, making sisters stop talking to each other when they are kind of moving through different social circles, they kind of fall out of touch. I think... I think they have like 11 kids. I can't, they've got a lot. And then, so when Fanny is um, a child, her parents are basically like, listen, we've got another kid on the way. We can't look after them all. Can you help us out with a son? Um, And so Fanny's brother, William, gets sent into the Navy. And then Fanny gets sent to live at Mansfield Park. Now, Aunt Norris, it's important to to know this, Aunt Norris, the one that isn't the lady, she's the one that suggests it. And she's like, we'll go and we'll get this kid. She'll come and live with us. It's really important that she's, she's not a servant, but she isn't as good or as important as your children. Okay, so let's get that distinction really clear. Also, she's going to live in Mansfield Park. She's not coming to live with me, uh, despite me not having any children and you already having four children and all sorts of things. She kind of, she's very good at managing other people's money. And then the time jump happens. And then we are with grown up Fanny, the poor cousin, Tom, the heir, the oldest son, Edmund, who is Fanny's favorite. And then Julia and Mariah Bertram, the two sisters, Mary Crawford and Henry Crawford come to stay with their sister who lives locally and they are very fashionable. They are Frenchified. They love going into town. They are kind of sexually liberated. Oh, yeah. uh, there's lots of scandal. They're hot. They turn things up on their heads. It's really exciting. And it kind of follows from that point um, kind of what the Crawfords do to this, to this family group and um, there are uh, affairs and flirtations and people are kind of swapping partners left, right and centre. Uh, Mariah, she ends up getting engaged to a guy called Mr Rushworth, who's very wealthy. She doesn't really love him, but then she has an affair with Henry. And then Mary wants Tom because he's the heir apparent, but then realises that actually she prefers Edmund because Tom goes off and he's not around Edmund wants to be a clergyman but she doesn't like the clergy and Fanny loves Edmund even though he's her cousin and then it all kind of starts to come to a head as all of these passions boil over lovely lovely description (laughs) how was that it was really good I um I think I've said this on the podcast before you know how I have that English teacher who um drunkenly one day declared on top like he was on his desk he stood on his desk and said (laughs) guys I want you guys to all know that there are only two kinds of stories. A man going on a journey or a man comes to town. And it's a man comes to town. This is a man comes to town. There's also boy meets girl. um, But, you know, whatever. There's all sorts. I'd recommend. There's there's really all sorts of stories, to be honest, guys. (laughs) But this is a man comes to town or the Crawfords come to town. The Crawfords come to town and the Crawfords are yeah. great. But we will talk about the Crawfords later. So, <laughs> Mansfield <laughs> Park, bit of a Marmite book. People love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not many people. And uh, people really hate it. People love to hate Mansfield Park. And I think one of the reasons for that is, regardless of what side of that fence you fall on, it is obviously the... Um, the book that is the least like all of the others like it does mm-hmm. stand alone it's arguably the least comedic multiple deaths uh, it spans uh, i think a decade maybe more um, whereas most of her books tend to be what like a year you know so right. we're getting like the family history not just in like in persuasion where it's kind of told through the the book that sir william's reading but we have scenes we have conversations between the aunt and uncle the aunt's and uncle discussing fanny and we meet fanny as a child before we meet fanny as an adult so 
it's really kind of going along a much grander timescale. And also, unlike all of the other books, the main romantic pairing is just discussed as being super gross in the first chapter. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a quote. Lauren, am I allowed to read the quote? Yeah, read the quote. Okay, so this is Aunt Norris, um, and she is trying to, at this point, persuade Lord and Lady Bertram um, to let Fanny come and live with them. And she says, You are thinking of your sons, but do not you know that of all things upon this earth, that is the least likely to happen, brought up as they would be, always together like brothers and sisters. It is morally impossible I never knew an instance of it. It is, in fact, the only way of providing against the connection. Suppose her, a pretty girl, and seen by Tom or Edmund for the first time in seven years hence, and I dare say there would be mischief. The very idea of her having been suffered to grow up at a distance from us all in poverty and neglect would be enough to make either of the dear sweet-tempered boys in love with her but breed her up with them from this time and suppose her to even have the beauty of an angel and she will never be more to either than a sister. Ooh. Wrong. Yeah, that backfires. It is wrong. (laughs) So something else that comes up a lot uh, with Mansfield Park is kind of the idea of whether or not it was popular at the time. I think I thought it was popular at the time because I'd, I'd read somewhere that um, Fanny more than Jane Austen's other characters as well she's never actually wrong right. she makes all of these decisions she makes all of these calls and these kind of character judgments and there are very few if any instances where Fanny can be uh, called wrong and you have in all of the other books people um, read into things or they believe the wrong person or they kind of they're on the wrong side of an argument and they kind of have to do some growing and Fanny never Mm. really does that and that is much more in line with other texts that were being published at the time she's virginal she's pure she's innocent she isn't this kind of flawed multifaceted character and so it is I think it's hard for modern day audiences to read that and not kind of loathe her a little bit now I know there are going to be people listening to this who are like I don't loathe her and I identify as her but you ain't me and I've got a microphone so (laughs) And if you do identify as Fanny, please like join our Facebook group and tell us why. And we will discuss this on future Mansfield Park episodes. When it was published, this is this is really interesting. So when it was published, um, it really it even then it struggled to find an audience. It wasn't reviewed uh, to anywhere oh. near the same extent as her other books. It was the uh, third published book. So Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice had come out. It was the first complete novel that Jane Austen wrote kind of after that gap of about a decade. And mm-hmm. there's a really good chapter about it in Helena Kelly's Jane Austen's Secret Radical. And it kind of explains the whole printing scenario that was surrounding it as well. So it had its first print run. And then uh, around this time, Henry Austen, who'd obviously been working as Jane Austen's literary agent and like doing all of the negotiations for her, he was really ill. So he wasn't kind of on the scene to take care of this. So Jane arranged a second printing and that massively ate into the profits of Emma. 750 copies of the second edition appeared in February 1816 and then uh, 400 copies had not been sold in five years. So they had like all of this surplus stock. So even for the audiences that the book was meant for, because that's the thing as well, like out, you know, do we not get it because it's out of context? Even people that were reading it at the time of publication were not warming to this book in the same way right. that they were warming to her others. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And she's a she's a hit at this point, too. Yeah, she is. Yeah. Okay. So not feeling it. Not feeling it. And then you look at Emma and it's it's not that um it's not that Mansfield Park like ruined her career because Emma comes out and then people do review that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Kelly does go into um the whole thing about um it's a criticism of the church Uh, it is about the slave trade we'll talk about that later on it's it is tackling a lot of kind of harder subjects and could it be that it was kind of being censored out of history a little bit by not Mm -hmm. being reviewed and people did write to jane to say like we really like it but that's not the same as having reviews in magazines um things that i do love about this book obviously fanny is from portsmouth that is where i am from I knew um, it. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. So first thing, Portsmouth, 
great. She describes it as being a bit of a hole, which is. Um, <laughs> even now. Um, so I really like that. It's got um, naval officers in it. It's a bit about the Navy. Fanny's father was in active service, but he's had an injury, so he can't work. Her brother William's in the Navy. We get little updates. Um, some of the ships that he's on were... Uh, named after ships that her brothers served on so you kind of you've got that that naval sister life life writing creeping into it which Mm -hmm. you know I love and I do really love there's this bit where Fanny is sent back to live with her family and that brings back the whole she's the ruined girl and her family you know where does she exist between these two worlds and Henry follows her you know he goes to Portsmouth to to see her you know grand gesture really romantic great um the the Crawfords as you said absolutely make this book and I think that's something that a lot of people can agree on they're so well written they're so interesting um and more more so than any other of Jane Austen's characters they're not they're liberated but they're not villainous in the way that Wickham and Willoughby are yeah right exactly I was gonna say that actually like they are the villains quote unquote of the book no they're not Aunt Norris oh. is the villain of the book. Well, yes. Yeah, she's she's a drag. Like, she's not even fun like Lady Catherine. No, and there are there are these moments of what she's saying isn't funny, but what she's talking about is funny because she's a hypocrite and she's conniving. Mm-hmm. And so when you see the things that she's saying in comparison to her behavior, you're like, oh my gosh, Aunt Norris. She's like, I don't know, Umbridge from Harry Potter, isn't she? She's just odious and she takes up so much of your time when you're reading yeah. it. And she's despicable. Yeah. But, um, you know, and even Henry Crawford, like, is he a bad lad? Like, is he? I don't mm. know. I never know with him. I think he's so I'm exciting. not sure. He's in the grey zone. And it is so hard to not love Mary Crawford when you... I think if you do any reading around Jane Austen and you start finding out about her cousin Eliza and how much she adored her and kind of admired her and she was so fashionable and so well-traveled and she's absolutely who Mary Crawford is based on. This woman mm-hmm. who's, you know, led this exciting life and then is condescending to even consider marrying someone who intends to join the church. And all right. of those conversations, you know, Edmund... You're much too interesting to join the church. What are you doing? Do something more interesting instead. And those were the conversations that Eliza was having with uh, Jane's brother, Henry. So mm. that's really interesting. And also, Henry Crawford does love Fanny. One of the last things that we hear about him in the last chapter of the book. Um, did I, oh, I, don't, I didn't keep my quote. It basically says that it, it sucks that he lost a woman that he did genuinely love. Right. That's my ad lib. You know, the last thing we hear about him is that because because he didn't get her, he's frustrated and he goes off and he does other stuff instead and he just ends up having to regret that this really good woman kind of passes him by because of his behaviour. Right. And there is a real tipping point. It could go either way, I think, with Fanny. And um, I need to find a source for this, so feel free to edit this out. But I am sure I have read somewhere that Cassandra and Henry Austin wanted Fanny and um Fanny and Henry Crawford to get together not Fanny and Edmund in the end they were they were rooting for that couple I actually think that would have been a really interesting book yeah it could have but it doesn't happen and it's frustrating (sighs) there's this amazing paragraph kind of very early on in the book um where you really get to the heart of Mary and it's kind of her relationship with Tom and her relationship with Edmund. So when she first hears about uh, the Bertrams, obviously Tom's the heir. That's the person that you want to aim for. And so that's the person she sets mm-hmm. her cap at. And then he goes away. He goes to town and she doesn't see him. And when he comes back, she kind of doesn't fancy him anymore. And so this quote, I just, I love it. She should be the main character. Um It was very vexatious and she was heartily sorry for it, but so it was. And so far from now meaning to marry the elder, she did not even want to attract him beyond what the simplest claims of conscious beauty required. His lengthened absence from Mansfield, without anything but pleasure in view and his own will to consult, made it perfectly clear that he did not care about her. And his indifference was so much more than equaled by her own that were he now to step forth the owner of Mansfield Park, the Sir Thomas Complete, which he was to be in time, 
she did not believe that she could accept him. So like this is a woman who, I think it's all about change, isn't it? It's like changing your mind, like knowing that as a young person, you've got these choices and what actions do you take? All of the young people are making constant decisions. They're constantly at crossroads and choosing what path to take and who to pursue and who to stay and who to be loyal to. Well, what I like too about Mary is that she's so, she's decisive and she's really like clear about like what she wants and how she wants to live her life. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't see that (laughs) in these books. You know, you don't, you just don't, you don't see that. So yeah, I wish she were the lead character. Well, that's interesting as well because the women in the book I think more so than the men, they they are constantly, they're all, they're, they're all being decisive in their own way. So I tried mm-hmm. to break it down a little bit. Um, Lady Bertram absolutely chooses to love that dog. Yes, she does. Loves that pug. Um, and then Aunt Norris, she has more power than I think any other Austin character, uh, female character, maybe Lady Catherine de Berg. But if you think, really, yeah. So she doesn't, she's not wealthy. She's, the sister of someone who is wealthy and yet if you mm-hmm. look at if you look at her fingers she's in she's got her hands in all the pies she's the person making all the decisions she is scheming she's like knitting together all of these lives and she's making plans for everyone and she's spending everyone else's money while mm-hmm. meanly counting and keeping her own money very close to her she absolutely manages everyone interesting interesting every okay. single person and that for the time like that's power. She's worked it out. She's she's right. She's got it sussed. Um, Mariah, the older of the two Bertram daughters, she chooses to marry Rushworth because of the perceived freedom that his money will give her from her family mm-hmm. and like the status. So she's like, this is me being free. But then she chooses to have an affair with Henry Crawford to escape the confines of this marriage. Right. And then she's ultimately she is punished for those two decisions because yeah. she has the affair. There's a scandal and then she has to live the rest of her life with living with Aunt Norris, which is a really terrible fate. Yeah, it is an awful fate. So she's punished awful. For that. Um, Fanny, although there is a lot of pushback from her family, she does ultimately choose to not marry Henry after he proposes. She chooses mm-hmm. not to do that and chooses instead to marry Edmund, despite it being fucking gross. <laughs> um, and that you know there there is so much pressure on her and she's she's constantly saying like I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and although it might seem that she's really pliable I think in the same way that we look at uh and and Elliot it's like what else can she do in these decisions and actually look at look at how she's holding herself and she is for the most part not letting people decide things for her right. you know um yeah. we'll talk about the play the play scene that happens but I think it's Edmund being swayed Edmund being persuaded that really sinks him quite low in in her opinion and all of those instances of Edmund being persuaded to do stuff by Mary Crawford or going back on his word because of the influences of these two newcomers those are the points where she's very much like oh dear oh Edmund you're not the man that I have been in love with since I was a wee infant mm-hmm. uh, and then Mary our darling Mary she um she could have had Tom so she's going after Tom but then she changes her mind she goes after Edmund and then when none of that works out she goes and lives with her sister who's the person that lives in town that they've been visiting and I think unlike Mariah I think she's absolutely not punished we are told that we're not told that she marries specifically Uh, it's kind of suggested that she does not for a long time but she is happy you know She goes and stays with her sister, which is kind of the balm that she needs after half a year spent flirting and doing what she wants and just goes and kind of lives a a quiet life, safe in the knowledge that she's hot and she's rich. There is so so much more to say about Mansfield Park. Um, I think the the choices thing and like um, the agency of the women is something I didn't really think about until this time. And like Mm -hmm. comparing all of them against each other. And there's this beautiful moment where... Um, they are exploring Mr. Rushworth, so Mariah's, Mariah's fiance's estate, and there's a gate, and Mariah's looking through it, and she's being compared to a bird. 
the bird can get through the gate and be free and go into like the meadow beyond and can she and then she realizes that she can force her way around and it's this foreshadowing you know mr rushworth has the key to the gate but actually she can just push her way past to get what she wants anyway which is what she does with henry crawford she goes after what she wants despite it being not the done thing right and fanny sits there and watches her and stays on the other side of the locked gate <laughs> so and that's why fanny's a boring lead character yeah it's almost like she's the plate that a delicious dinner is on yeah yeah who cares about the plate no one yeah Wait, what a weird analogy that was <laughs> it was a bit strange <laughs> And then I was sitting here thinking about plates that I have loved. Plates I have loved. It's my new Tumblr. So, Lauren, we've got um, an interview today, don't we? We do have an interview. And who's it with? So, on the day I gave birth, actually, I had the pleasure of interviewing Guy Withers and Rebecca Meltzer. Now, they are involved with the Water Perry Opera Festival, which is going to take place in Oxford. This August, I'm so upset that I can't go because Oxford is my favorite place in the world. And um, this is Austin Bronte related in the fact that they are actually doing an opera version of Mansfield Park, which I thought was fascinating. Um, Let's go ahead and jump into this interview and then we're going to talk more about Mansfield Park when we come back. Excellent. So who is responsible for this? Who was like the brainchild behind the festival? Oh, well, (laughs) um, (laughs) I mean, the two of us sort of came up with the idea together uh, in the early stages of development. But I think um, I guess the the idea to form this festival came from probably mostly from me in that I had much to do with the site before and the artistic heritage of the site and things that had come um things that led up to kind of us bringing a show there in the first place um and then okay. I approached Guy and said oh let's do this together and uh, from there things things began to develop yeah. yeah now what was your history with the site so um For many years, the site actually ran uh, an arts festival, a visual arts festival called Art in Action, uh, which Mm -hmm. hosted up to 30,000 people a year over four days. So it was a visual visual arts festival that had all different mediums from sculpture, painting, ceramics, some performance art. Music, dance. Music, dance. Talks, that sort of thing. Yeah, talks practical classes um but it was more for the visual arts than the performing arts for sure but I volunteered that I have done since I was a little kid so I volunteered that every year and sadly that came to an end in 2016 um so basically the site was crying out for something to not necessarily replace it but something to continue its artistic heritage and sort of Mm -hmm. mark it as as a as a site for art um and that was yeah, yes. kind of where we came in, I think. So I think Simon, who is the guy who runs the estate, he, rather than having this huge festival for a couple of days, wants to try and spread out. So mm. we have become okay. one of a number of things that are happening in the garden. So they've got you know, the plans for a ceramics festival, a storytelling festival, other sorts of things. So the ideas across the whole year, you've got a variety of different stuff that people mm. can really enjoy in this wonderful site. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. So it's... Waterbury Park, we should say. I want to say Waterbury Park, and please forgive me if I do. <laughs> we all have all sorts of names. Uh, yes, it's, it's it's an estate, so it's 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 a big country house um, with acres of beautiful oh, landscape yeah. gardens, landscaping, um, yeah. Hedge, uh, hedge hedgerows, apple um, orchards, apple orchards. They make their own rose, waterbury apple juice on site. Yeah. <laughs> rose gardens. Yeah. Uh, it's beautiful, really beautiful. Yeah. Um, with with the river running through it, it I mean, it, it really is one of the best gardens in, in yeah. the UK, I would say. I mean, of, of yeah. all of, you know, so we're very lucky that it has that. And the house itself, um, the estate dates back to pre-conquest. So that's pre-1066. We're talking thousands oh, wow. years old. There's a chapel there that has pre-Norman uh, kind of foundations. It's amazing. And the house itself, part of it is Tudor. But most of it is um, 17th, 18th century, so kind of around the time of Austin and that sort of time. So it, it, okay. it fits in 
perfectly within that that era of when when you think of that sort of house, the country house. Um, and now, of course, it has uh, an art gallery, a huge garden centre, uh, has an amphitheatre actually, which we're using for part of the festival. Oh wow, yeah. perfect! Yeah, exactly. I know, I know. So the site itself has so much to offer. It's really a, a most unique sort of thing. Yeah, it has. A, it also has the largest display of contemporary fresco work in the house. Uh, I think in the country. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful yeah. Or inside so, the house, uh, they painted the entire all the walls with uh, frescoes. Um, so yeah, it's really this crazy unique place, and it's owned by a charity now. Um, I mean, it's, do you want to talk about its history back a bit in terms of how it's yeah. sort of? Yeah. Well, I mean, in. Um... Um, so yeah, in 1948, that was it. Um, the estate was actually um, used by a lady called Beatrix Havergirl, who was a horticulturalist, and she ran a school called the Waterbury School of Horticulture for women specifically. Um, so that's where the gardens sort of started to come into their own, really, and that's why they're so beautiful and so well maintained now. Um, and then it was taken over in 1971 by a charity who now use it to run uh, retreats for mindfulness and meditation and all that sort of thing. So we're very lucky in the facilities that we're able to use. They're so well maintained um, and so well kept. So yeah, it's all there for us really, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's crazy. So what spaces are you guys using? I mean, obviously the amphitheater, but like, is there, are there other, like maybe sort of like non-traditional spaces that you're using for the festival as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, many, so I mean, this is the thing about the site is that there are so many spaces that we could use. And this year we had to be really careful about not, not getting too ambitious too soon and to, you know, mm-hmm. pace ourselves because hopefully in the years to come, we can use all the spaces available. But this year we're just using the amphitheater for our main production. And then in the house, uh, we use using well, the ballroom initially, but also because our production of Mansell Park hopes to be a little bit more immersive than just holding itself in one room, we're using things like the entrance hall, the amazing grand staircase that leads up to the ballroom, all as part of the production. So in that sense, it's it's quite a unique uh, and, you know, it's, it's not traditionally a performance space and we're finding a way to right. make it a performance space. Now, will you set up chairs or will you have the audience actually move with you like through the house? So a bit of both. So because okay. the opera has is quite structured and we have to adhere to that structure, um, there is certainly chunks of it where all the audience members have to be seated um, mm-hmm. in a more traditional setup. But um, as, as the director of the production, I'm using that as the kind of heart and soul of the production and with hopefully the action extending more beyond the text and more beyond the music and that that element should uh be much more immersive and and we hope to lead the audience a little bit round the space into the ballroom before uh the opera actually begins but with the characters already starting to play out we really hope that uh when audiences arrive in the main door that they're immediately immersed in this kind of regency experience yeah and then they feel Mm -hmm. like they've stepped in to something and they've gone back in time and that immediately there's someone handing them a scone or you know or that there's mm-hmm. you know uh, you see little snippets of the family life uh, yes, sort of exactly. playing out around them right yeah, yeah so there's this kind of uh ethereal dream of kind of stepping into something that you know, it's almost like a movie set or whatever yeah. or into a book and yeah. um, being led up the stairs up the grand staircase and taking into a room by somebody and then with the show in the ballroom as you said becca that um it's uh, not massive. It's really intimate. It is intimate. So yeah. there, you know, there's a, there's not a hu- huge audience, but they're going to be st- sat there right in front of these characters, yeah, yeah. Kind of playing out, you know, the 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 word of Jane Austen. Yeah, this is really quite exciting. Yeah, absolutely. It's the first thing for this show. It's a very recent opera, actually, but it's the first time that someone's tried to do it like this rather yeah. than in a theatre. With a with a. Proceed. That's fantastic. Yeah. Now. If there's one thing I know about Jane Eyes is that they do like to dress up. Mm, yes. <laughs> so would you encourage your audience members to wear Regency clothing? That's a really interesting point. I would, I would love like, them to wear Regency yeah. clothing. I mean, actually, we haven't, we haven't mentioned this on any of our marketing, but, you know, I would be so chuffed if someone really came for the full immersive experience and brought their own costume with them. But maybe we should think about having some dress-up items anyway, because, That's you great. know, everyone know. loves to... You know, they they love it, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> good, good, good point. We'll think about that for sure. Yeah. Okay. 
I mean, that would be amazing. I this sounds really great. Oh, I wish you guys could like come over to the Jane Austen Festival, bring oh. this like production over here. Well, That'd be great. Okay. Um, well, we'll see. <laughs> well, we're, we're hoping to get in contact with the Jane Austen Festival in Bath because they have so much. Okay, perfect. And um, we they already know about us, but you know it might be something that we end up touring in future years or something like that. Because well, we'll see how it goes down this year, and then you know, yeah, yeah, that's the plan because it's it, it is something different. It's not just you know, the magic of Austin, the world, the text, and, you know, everything that comes with that. But then it's this added element of this amazing music and the amazing voices. I mean, these singers are um, so talented and it, it sort of take, it takes, it takes Austin's um, novel and Austin's story and Austin's characters into a different place as well, just right. through this musical interpretation. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I could see the immersive experience really appealing to Jane Austen fans. And then also just opera being new for a lot of Jane Austen fans as well. So it's just offering something different because God knows yeah, we have a lot of, yeah, <laughs> we have a lot of like it's, it's, just regular kind of stage adaptations. And... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which... It's, it's a new world, I think, for people. They don't realize that um, it actually works really well. It really works really well as an yeah. opera because it's kind of has that beautiful form and it uses, you know, Dub's music, there's the modern British composer, he uses the music of contemporaries like Mozart and Beethoven, that, those sorts of sounds. And it sounds like a movie soundtrack. Mm -hmm. You know, it sounds like, oh gosh, mm -hmm. I'm there. And it's it, it works so well because it, it's basically like a film right in front of your eyes. Yeah, and the great thing about opera is that you can have more than one person speaking or singing at the same time. So, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can see the thoughts developing from several people as they're having a... Uh, you know, a dialogue or, uh, you know, as these feelings are arise, you know, the audience experience it from two perspectives or more than two perspectives at the same time, which can be quite an amazing thing to experience. So now, do you guys know why Mansfield Park was chosen to be turned into an opera? You know what? Um, well, it was commissioned by this company okay. called Heritage Opera. So they, they were the ones who decided, okay, we want to commissioned Jonathan Dove, this composer, to do a production of Mansfield Park. I do not know to the to to this day why it was why Mansfield that one Park rather than chosen. like persuasion yeah. or yeah. pride and prejudice, whatever. I don't yeah. know. Because I mean it's 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 a brilliant book, but it's not, you know, it's not the obvious choice for the first ever opera to be written of, yeah. the, of an Austin yeah. novel. Maybe right. there are more obvious choices perhaps, I don't know. Mm. But um yeah. I kind of wondered if it was because it is a sort of um it's very much of a contained space as well. Mm, yeah, That's true. Exactly. They don't travel that much, do they? They I mean, really don't. I think there's, no. only, there's only like one or two scenes where they go outside of the house. One is to mm -hmm. Mr. Rushworth's um, estate where they go and visit, visit Southerton Gardens. And I think the other is they talk about going to Brighton, don't they? But that's, they just, they just yeah. go off and but it, it's, it's little glimpses yeah. into these other other spaces but it, like you say it's yeah. very much contained and that's what works so well like, i guess if you did something like persuasion right you'd have to, you'd be all over the place yeah. or, and you know yeah or whatever but i guess for mansfield park a lot of the scenes you can just play out in this regency house that we have you can just set yeah, it up exactly. like it's yeah. there and, and it's, it's very domestic and, and that's exactly. the kind of feel of, of our production as well is yeah. that you are part of that domestic life yeah. of the characters so i guess that's why really but usually as yeah. i say with these sort of things a, a company will say to a composer uh please write this opera for them so that's why he did it? so we should we should ask heritage though why it was not so popular. why it was that one i don't know but still we're glad we did it anyway yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting choice i have to say i feel like a lot of times yeah you'd go for persuasion or Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. um, I think I've seen almost everything adapted for stage except for Mansfield Park. Well, there we go. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, this fills the gap. It's a hard okay. one to find. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, we know people who did Mansfield Park didn't we as a play, but yeah, no, I know what you mean. It's, it's, it. You know, you think as the first opera, it would have been something like Pride and Prejudice, but um, who knows? It might come next. But hopefully, there'll yeah. be more. Hopefully, there'll be more. Mm. <laughs> Now, did you guys reread Mansfield Park? It's a bit it's a bit of a challenge as far as an Austin book goes. Yeah, it is. I mean, well, last time we did it, I read the book. I haven't read it since. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I have this beautiful kind of leather bound antique version actually that was given a while ago, which has illustrations uh, that accompany the text and it's such a nice thing to start reading again because it just sort of it has that visual element as well as the text so I'm just about to get started on that 
but um okay when and sorry oh no i was gonna say did you watch the films too as well? yeah we've we watched yeah. um, uh, there's the billy pack one there's the there's the there's the yeah, yeah. yeah the other yeah. one's nicer uh, o'connor what's her name um oh is it francis o'connor francis yes. o'connor, that's it. yeah yeah i love yeah. that one as well uh, i think that's probably my favorite but um mm-hmm. yeah i mean the opera sort of it dwells more on i would say the light-hearted themes in the book rather than some mm-hmm. of the darker themes <clears throat> so yeah it's great to go back to the book i think and, and i think a lot of the cast actually at the moment they're rereading the book mm. or reading it for the first time you know some of them i reckon um so it's really nice because obviously the opera has to cut out so much of the text it's really nice right to, to fill in around that as well and what i will say is that I, having read the the script the the libretto that the opera singers sing that although like a lot of it has obviously been condensed he uh the librettist who wrote you know adapted Jane Austen's work he uses a lot of what she said so you mm. can really like okay. link back real obvious sections that yeah. Edmund has said or that Mary Crawford said right to the book and yeah. uh, so that's really great so you, you know if, if, a, if an avid reader knows Mountain Park they will n- they know will the, know the lines yeah. And that's so mm. rare, I think, in anything else. Um, and that's really amazing that you hear these lines sung, you know, yeah. in such a kind of um, emotional, romantic, kind of full, uh, full-bodied way that yeah. you wouldn't normally, expect, you know, someone just says it on screen yeah. or whatever. It's, it's very so different, different. It's hearing, very it, different, hearing yeah. a line sung to hey, a line yeah, said. Yeah. Yeah. Or ten singers bellowing at you, you know, yeah. it's a real kind of visceral experience. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Now, you guys are in rehearsals right now, right? So Not we haven't yet. started yet. We Not have, quite yet. Okay. We start at the end of well, we start at the beginning of August. So we've got, okay. a, we've got a month, you know, a month to sort of really delve deep into mm. the, the book again and get to know the characters. And I guess at the moment we're just uh, kind of starting to market the show. So um, mm-hmm. uh, box office is open, tickets are on sale, and they've been selling quite well actually. Yeah. Um, oh, good. So that's really good. Um, yeah. So kind of just on the preparation side, sort of thing. Make sure we actually had a costume meeting didn't we yeah. recently we went to this costume maker in bristol actually we're really lucky mm-hmm. that actually all our costumes are being made we made bespoke for our, bespoke cast, for our cast oh wow which That's is like a dream come true for me because she's yeah like, she's like all the fabrics and the designs and you know shoes and just that i think the attention to detail is going to be really good for this production and i'm so pleased that we're able to do that it's just so exciting isn't mm. it I, I think even within the opera world you don't get that sort of really really sparkle on a, on a show to have something new and something immersive and something so mm-hmm. exciting as Jane Austen like it's, it's it's a it's a great choice I'm so pleased we've decided to do it actually mm-hmm. yeah now have you guys you've cast the show yeah yes. we did so we actually yes. way back in January okay which was a long process it was good fun though it's good fun because uh, we had many applications yeah we did um, so there's only 10 people on the cast so there are okay. many more characters in the in the obviously in the book, but um, mm-hmm. but uh, Dove when he wrote it decided to have just ten characters. Yeah. Um, so a couple aren't used, but obviously all the main ones like the two Crawfords, Edmund, Mariah, Julia, two sisters, yeah, um, Lady Bertram, Norris, Rushworth. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all the all, oh, Sir Thomas yeah. obviously. Um, yeah. So we had to try and find these ten people. Yeah. Because um, it's it's it, when you're casting for an opera, it's not just Obviously, you want to find the right character. You want to find the right, right person to fit the role, um, the right look, the right energy. And then also you've got to find the right voice. So the way right. the way it's written in the opera score is, uh, you know, for example, uh, Mary Crawford has a really high and florid voice. And then Fanny has a, a quite a contrasting kind of low um, sort of plainer deep. writing as well, isn't yeah. it? Much more. Mary's very like, you know, show waffy sort of thing yeah absolutely. And, and fanny's very kind of just sort of slightly more not plain that's fun but kind of just kind of more declamatory it's really interesting yeah. and you've got to find someone who can really inhabit that yeah you know so right. thomas is really kind of oh sort of really kind of old-fashioned and bassy but and edmund is sweet toned and, and exactly and, and yeah. henry's sort of like a bit james bondy smarmy sort of <laughs> you know so it's really funny <laughs> how we, when you add an element of music that um, you know, it really colours the the uh, personalities yeah, of the people. Absolutely. So you've got to find the right singer to to bring that out in the tone. You know, whether they're kind of like rich or whether it's more like a blade. You know, it's really difficult. 
find find people. You know, we did a number of callbacks, didn't we? We did a number of callbacks. I tell you what, though, it was really hard to choose because we had a lot of really fantastic people apply, and uh, we've ended up with an amazing cast. So I'm so excited to start working with them. Yes. That's very exciting. Yeah, I'm just imagining all of them in the same room together and like the diverse voices that you have and them interacting. Yeah, absolutely. The very first chord in the opera, every single character sings together. So you have these 10 voices that announce the title of the piece. And it's it's a magic moment. It's a sort of wow moment. Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? It's a great way to bring in a new audience. I think (laughs) I, I am, you know, I know nothing about opera. I've been several times here in Chicago to the Lyric. Oh, yes. Um, Because my friend's a costume designer for them. So I love the spectacle. Yeah. And also, I'm a great lover of Inspector Morrison Endeavor. So (laughs) it's like, (laughs) that's like how limited my opera experience is. But I'm very, very interested in like, this really did grab me right away because I'm like, oh, this is something sort of accessible for me, you know, like to bring me in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Actually, you know, we all think of opera being, you know, uh, Viking helmets and spears and all that sort of stuff and Valkyries and whatever, but but really that's opera from like 100, 200 years ago. It's opera um, that's slowly being phased out and, well, and making yeah. room right. for for new and for new, more for new, for new voices yeah, for new things. More I mean, accessible stuff. So that... varied. And now, of course, like the that barrier between what we call mu- musicals and music theatre and opera is so blurred. Mm. I mean, okay. West Side Story and Sondheim, and in fact, Darb's Mansfield Park, it's written almost yeah, like a musical. It is. There are certainly the elements okay. that remind you so much more of musical theatre than opera. But you know, you have it's sung exactly. with, with operatic voices. Exactly. So mm. you know, there's so much out there. Like everything, if you have a look, there's something for everybody, sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. And we are back. And we want to talk about theater in Mansfield Park, which yeah. I find very exciting and relevant. Very relevant. It's very topical. Very relevant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, it's funny with the, the, with the theater scene in Mansfield Park, um, which, I mean, one, it makes it, like, really fitting that that is the book that they've decided to adapt because I actually think, although the theater portion is very very small it's where so much of the characters kind of inner feelings and truth kind of comes out for the first time um it's it is the only it's the only one of the books with with a theatrical a family theatrical in it isn't it Mm -hmm. yeah it is yeah um and yeah and so it is funny because really this book is fanny's book and fanny is uh, morally very opposed to the idea of doing the theatrical Edmund is against it Sir Thomas isn't there and their kind of stance is Sir Thomas wouldn't like it like he would absolutely not be into us doing this play and the setting is that Tom's come back from his time away he's brought his good friend Misty Yates with him Misty Yates is raving on and on about how he was staying with another family they were going to put on a play um Lover's Vows and it kind of got cancelled for I can't remember the reason actually um, and everyone is just like, oh, a play. Well, we could do it. And they're not necessarily going to do Lover's Vows to begin with. They discuss doing other things. But then that's the the play they end up settling on. Um, and again, this is one of those moments where Fanny is kind of like, oh, Edmund is maybe not as good as I thought he was. Because initially, he's very strongly like, I don't want any part of this. I don't want to be involved. I don't want to help you pick anything else. I just think that we shouldn't be doing it. And this is a bad idea. And everyone, Lady Bertram... Uh, Mrs. Uh, Aunt Norris, Mr. Yates, Tom, Mariah, Julia, Mr. Rushworth, Mary Crawford, Henry Crawford, they're all just like, let's go. And they start building this stage and the servants are making curtains and, you know, there's doors involved. It's it's this big thing that's taking place. And Edmund eventually, because Mary keeps flirting with him and then kind of suggests that if he doesn't do it, another man will have to come and be flirted with. He's like, you know what? I will do it. Okay. And Fanny is horrified. But the mistake that people can make is thinking that because Fanny is the person who the story is about, is that these are like Austin's views on plays, right? Right. And they are not. So Definitely not. No, like, not at all. Um, Lauren, do you want to read that quote from Edmund? All right, Edmund. I'm going to do it in my best uh, British accent as well. Oh, please do. I think it would be wrong. In a general light, private theatricals are open to some objections. But as we are circumstanced, I must think it would be highly injudicious 
and more than in, uh, injudicious. Like, who says that? Edmund, shut up. To <laughs> attempt anything of the kind. It would be, it would show great want of feeling on my father's account, absent as he is, and in some degree of constant danger. And it would be imprudent, I think, with regards to Mariah, whose situation is a very delicate one, considering everything extremely delicate. Edmund. Mariah's engaged at this point, so obviously she's not married. She's going to be in this play. It's not the done thing. Um, he goes on later to say as well uh, of Sir Thomas, he goes, he would never wish his grown-up daughters to be acting plays. His sense of decorum is strict. True story. And then from Fanny, we get, Agatha and Amelia appeared to her in their different ways, so totally improper for home representation, the, situa the situation of one and the language of the other, so unfit to be expressed by any woman of modesty, that she could hardly suppose her cousins could be aware of what they were engaging in, and longed to have them roused as soon as possible by the remonstrance which Edmund would certainly make. So again, this is kind of Fanny not acting. She's like, oh, this is really wrong. I can't wait for Edmund to tell them to not do it. Right. Ah, she's so frustrating. Now, um, in kind of reference to the play scene, one of the best things I can recommend you go and do, because it really helped me, is go and get a copy of The Real Jane Austen, A Life in Small Things by Paula Byrne and read the chapter, The Theatrical Scenes, because it goes into so much not just about Mansfield Park, but kind of the context that Jane Austen was writing in against her her family. Like, there's there's so much stuff that, like, I never thought about that she touches on. For example, um, Paula Byrne says that of all of Jane Austen's characters, Tom Bertram is the most likely to be a homosexual. And she... Oh, um, Yeah, so she's citing um, that his fondness for theatre and obviously the very long historical uh, relationship that... Uh, homosexuality in theatre has uh, his close relationship with Mr. Yates and then the fact that he doesn't marry uh, mm -hmm. so she goes into that she also explains and this is fascinating uh, the play Love is Vows really cleverly mirrors the like intimacies and the fates of the young cast so okay. as a modern audience this is one of those clues that we don't get because we don't know Love is Vows mm -hmm. and um you know, all of the people that are coupled up, it kind of mirrors what's going to happen in the rest of the novel. Okay. Which is super interesting. And then the reason Fanny isn't allowing herself to take part is that unlike kind of like the more daring and fashionable uh, people that are surrounding her, she's actually still not considered out at this point. She's not in society. I can't talk. She's not in society. She's actually not a woman. Right. So how can Fanny be involved in this highly sexual play when she's not considered a woman by the rest of the people. And I right. think it's before this scene, um, Mary Crawford is trying to establish, is she out or is she not? And they are talking about all of these young women whose behavior changes from when they are not introduced to society and when they are. And the fact that Fanny isn't, you know, she, she's repressed. The story is about her being mm -hmm. repressed and trying to find a voice when you're in that situation. Uh, the other thing that the book does a really good job of is just explaining Jane Austen's relationship with theatres and theatricals. So we know for a fact that Jane Austen was writing theatricals of her own and that she was performing them. We know that she went to the theatre. So why would someone who loves the theatre and loves theatricals and writes them, why, why would she be against them? Why are we taking it for granted that this is this is her opinion, you know? Right. Um, it's the same as when people read novels in these books like is the person saying reading novels is bad or are they challenging that that idea you know exactly like, exactly Edmund is an idiot is what she's saying and what's really funny <laughs> is obviously uh James Austin her older brother he he would write theatricals as well when he was younger but he became very serious clergyman and then when he took possession of the Austin family home there was this big sale they sold a lot of the family furniture including a set of theatrical scenes so James comes to a point in his life when he becomes a clergyman where he is like you know what I'm not doing this anymore I'm putting this away so is it any surprise that Edmund a young clergyman is like I'm not doing this but Mary and Henry are like let's go and do the theatrical 
Nice. Jane Austen well, you got to has... do something. They don't have Netflix. No, well, they don't. No. Theatricals and chill. Yeah, exactly. And, like, and all that's her... the episode title. And that's the episode title. Yeah, good. Um, all of her other siblings, they're still doing them. And then, like, well into her adult life, Jane Austen is doing theatricals um, at her brother Edward's house with his children. So they're they're all still part of the fun, you know. Right. So this is very much, like, not a theatricals a bad situation. And I think that if you're going to go and see a play of a Jane Austen book, then Mansfield Park is probably the one to go and see. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, I just think, like, if you if you think about all of that, go and read go and read um, the Helena Kelly chapter on Mansfield Park, mm-hmm. uh, which is called The Chain and the Cross, I think. And then go and read uh, the Paula Byrne chapter on theatricals and then read Mansfield Park and then go and see the play. Okay. And then, and only then, are you allowed to watch any of the adaptations. <laughs> this is the proper way to read Mansfield Park. The proper way. <laughs> Now we so, did we did ask people what their thoughts were. Didn't well, you did, Lauren, didn't you? I did. I was curious. Oh my god, <laughs> you guys! This is why we have to do more episodes on Mansfield Park. Honestly, you guys, um, it is Marmite. You're correct. You love it or you fucking hate it. Yeah. I mean, we kind of knew this because we do survey everyone um, that we interview on this show. And just kind of test the, you know, to see where they fall. And um, I would say persuasion and Pride and Prejudice always fall in the top two, right? Mm-hmm. Bottom, it's always like Emma or Mansfield Park. And I would say like 80% of the time, Mansfield Park. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually surprised by how many people said they liked it when you... Yeah. When you do yeah. the call out. I feel like everyone who's read Mansfield Park and liked it was like, oh, I better answer this because otherwise <laughs> the opportunity is not coming again anytime soon. Exactly. Um, so Leanne was definitely right up there uh, with us in loving uh, Mary Crawford. So she did say MP isn't my favorite Austin book, but it does have my all time favorite Austin character, Mary Crawford. All time favorite. That's very strong. Mary is great. Mary is great. She has some great Mary quotes. I don't know if you yeah. want to read some. Okay, so the first one that Leanne shared was, oh, do not attack me with your watch. A watch is always too fast or too slow. I cannot be dictated to by a watch. Lona Manning said that Mansfield Park is the book I reread the most. Wow. Which is, I mean, you've wow. got to just to. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, props to you. Um, that must mean it's my favorite. I love the language and I even like Edmund. Mm. Also, he is a very quiet, wry wit. I think he's good husband material. Okay, I'm going to have to reread it again for Edmund. Yeah, I'm going to have to try and highlight some of that wit because I did not see it. I think he's um, a bit wishy-washy. He's a wet blanket. Mm. He's a sad lad. He's a sad lad, but you know what? Sometimes you read something over and over and over and over again and you just... Yeah, it's called Stockholm Syndrome. It's what happens to people that like Mr. Rochester, isn't it? All right, fair enough. Sarah Rose (laughs) Kearns also uh, weighed in on the Mansfield Park debate. And she said, the thing that I find most disturbing about Mansfield Park, especially after reading Edward Said, is the ultimate reconciliation of Fanny and Sir Thomas. That's an interesting point. Um, He doesn't deserve to be absolved, though Austin's narrator clearly wants him to be. Interesting. Yeah, we I get... didn't even think about their relationship, to be honest. Yeah, the the oh, the relationship is so weird. Again, Helena Kelly does like such a good job of breaking it down because he's really distant, he's really cold, he's really aloof. He owns slaves, he keeps going off, he does all of these like morally not even like that ambiguous, I mean like reprehensible things. Um, mm-hmm. And then he really tries to force her into getting married to Henry Crawford. He is not nice about it. He does not have right. Fanny's back. He doesn't respect her decisions. And he kind of gets this a bit lechy. It's like, yeah, she's like a woman now. She's pretty hot. So, yeah, like, do you want him to be, do you want him to be absolved? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And that wasn't the only comment either that brings in um, Edward said or um, all of those undertones and all of those things that I think modern readers perhaps gloss over. And that was a discussion mm-hmm. that started coming up um, a lot. God, we're going to have to have a whole episode about it for sure. We will. Um, 
Nikita Harvey said, definitely the most underrated Austin. My Austin list is continually changing, but generally it's somewhere in the middle. It's one that grows best on me. Every time I read it, I get more out of it. And every time I want to get Edmund a harder slap upside the head. I mean, yeah. 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 I think that's fair. I'm queuing <laughs> up behind you to do that. Um, Kylie Goats said, uh, least favorite. Ugh. Fanny is insipid. Everything is frustrating. No one's end up, no one ends up with who they should. I find it's probably Austin's most realistic and least charming work. Well written though, just never what I want to read. And oh. I think that's like the perfect tweet about Mansfield. <laughs> Sarah Borland said seventh behind Sanditon. I laughed so hard when I saw I that tweet. Did, I, did I was too. like, <laughs> ow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly you guys did we... so well at finding the best ways of saying how much you hated this book <laughs> <laughs> and drunk austin this would be robin from drunk austin um i've always been fond of this one despite the overwhelming dislike many have for it fanny has a lot of calm and quiet qualities that i wish i had so that's sort of like the um aspirational Anne elliott like, I wish, I wish yeah. I was more like this, but I'm not. I think, you know, if I, if I was like Fanny. <laughs> cut, beep that. And don't just, don't cut it out or don't. Could just cut don't it out. Anyone. Thank you. Just cut it out. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> and then um, Bianca from Drunk Austin said, oh man, I hated it until I was in a very Fanny-like situation with jobs, not family. Sometimes you have to do the best you can with what you have. It's a tough lesson, but I appreciate her more for it. I want to know what the situation was. Yeah, like what would Fanny do? Like I'm trying to think of any situation where I'm like, what would Fanny do? And what would I Fanny do? I don't think of anything. Um, I really liked Helen's comment. Uh, I kind of loathe it. Can't believe the same woman who wrote Lizzie Bennett wrote Fanny Price. Can't bear her. I know she's really good, but she's as wet as a bucket of water. Mm-hmm. She is. True story. Um, Nev wrote, someone less diffident than Fanny might have reformed the Crawfords, but then someone less diffident might have gone along with them. I'm itching to write a modernization. Ooh, no adaptation has done it justice, in my opinion. Yeah, that's interesting. I would like a modern version of this book, actually. Yeah, I'd like a modern Out of version. all of the Austin novels, I want to I wanna see what someone would do with a modernization of this Although one. there's some themes in there that I... Uh, how would you do that? Yeah, it's tough. Sorry. It is tough. <laughs> um, and then the last one, Dustin Faber. Uh, it's my favorite. Easier to digest and jump into than Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. Interesting. Interesting. You, Dustin? Dustin? Mm. I want to subscribe to your newsletter. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's an interesting thought. That's an opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh -huh. I mean, thank you everyone for getting involved. I will just say one like, closing thing. There was a really lengthy discussion about whether or not Mansfield Park is being overread when people say um, it's uh, abolitionist, it's anti-slave trade, it, or if it's about the slave trade at all. And I really, I'm going to hammer it home, go and read Jane Austen, The Secret Radical and the chapter on Mansfield Park, because it goes so deep into the way that Jane Austen is sliding in political references just from like character names, Mrs. Norris, the place name, uh, Mansfield Park. Um, if you don't know who Lord Mansfield is, Google him, or you can watch the 2013 film Bell for a nice like fictional uh, count, account of um, like his life but he was someone that was really involved kind of accidentally with the um abolition of the slave trade in the uk so there there are all of these links and i think anyone that says that mansfield park is not about it is doing that book a disservice yeah i mean she's doing it on the sly right she's not going to be openly no this and whole book is just like on the sly yeah yeah this yeah. whole book is mariah and henry holding hands in rehearsals you know yeah can you see it you putting two and two together you know, just barely today, but 
We're skimming the Maybe tomorrow. We've skimmed the surface today on Mansfield Park. Um, there is so much more to say about it. Obviously, uh, keep the discussion going. Ask us any questions on the social media. Um, there's so much to say and we're not done. We're going to go into it more. So please don't finish this episode and be like, but you haven't discussed this. Because I'm right. We will. We will. We will. And um, Hannah, if people want to continue that discussion on the social media, where do they go? How do they do it? You can find us as always on Twitter and Instagram at bonnets at dawn. You can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook searching bonnets at dawn. True story. Yeah. Okay, guys. That's where we are. Thank you so much for joining us for our Mansfield Park and theater episode. I hope um, some people go to the Mansfield Park Opera and let us know how it was. Yeah, jealous. Also, like, go to the Botanic Gardens in Oxford, my favorite place in the world, and the Turf Tavern. I once saw uh, McFly perform in Oxford, and it was lovely. Wow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I am underwhelmed, just like how I was when I read Mansfield Park. Rude. That is rude. (laughs) Oh, my God.